Well, um, if you have your, your Bibles with you or whatever medium you're using to look at the Word of God, uh, make your way to Matthew chapter 3. We are uh, in our series, Tell Me a Story of Jesus. This is message number 16. If you were trying to keep track, that's how far we are. We are about ready to come to where adult Jesus finally enters the pages of Scripture. But starting this morning and for the next two weeks after, so three weeks altogether, we're going to be looking at the ministry, the message of John the Baptist, which leads to the baptism of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, and I'm really looking forward to this morning's message because it's going to give us a glimpse of what we're going to get to do in this series. And what I was uh, felt led to do is we're going to be able to take parts of different Gospels and begin piecing them together so we can get a deeper understanding of what is being said or what is happening, what is going on, just some further background and get this beautiful image that the Gospels all allow us to have when it comes to the story or the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, since we have a massive attendance, we can have some interaction today, right? So how many Gospels are there? Four, Four Gospels. Anybody want to Shoot out the names, Bible drill, memory. Okay, we got all four there. Now, there, out of four Gospels, there are three which are known as synoptic Gospels. Synoptic Gospels are it's a word that means the most similar, they're most alike. Anybody know which of the four, or which of the three of the four are the synoptic Gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I heard, I heard that somewhere. It's kind of mumbling. You all need to speak up a little more authority. Be like John the Baptist, we'll see here in a second, just you know, crying aloud. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. It's not that you cannot find some of the stories in those Gospels in the Gospel of John. It's that the Gospel of John is a little more unique than all the others. It takes a different approach in beginning the Gospel and introducing who Jesus Christ is. There are stories in the Gospel of John which we don't find in any of the other Gospels. And, and John points it out at the end of his Gospel that if he were to write everything to which Jesus said and did, then all the books in all the world wouldn't be able to contain it. And so when we come to the Gospels, when we come to anything in the New Testament, we have to remember that they didn't have the resources we have where we could sit at a computer and we could just type for days and for hours and have pages upon pages of, of notes. They had a certain amount of space, and so they had to be very precise in what they were put in. And this is why we can trust that God guided the writers of the Gospels to write what they wrote and, and to put into what we now call books, or actually letters, to their particular audiences. And the reason some stories are in some Gospels and some aren't in the others is because of the audience to which each gospel is intended for. And we're going to actually see how that plays out this morning when we read through our passage in Matthew chapter 3. Now Matthew chapter 3 it begins with John the Baptist preparing the way. We're going to read through verse 12 this morning. It's actually the longest passage of the three synoptic gospels concerning this event. But we're also going to look into the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke because they record this event as well. And we're going to pull from them to get some deeper understanding of what's going on. And, and, we'll, and I'll point out when we go to those different Gospels in case you stay in Matthew. But this is going to be our main focus. And our, our focus this morning is lessons from John or lessons that we can take from John's ministry and what John was called to do. So beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3. The word of the Lord says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And let's just stop there for a second. Sorry, Ethan, if you moved on. John begins with a very generic beginning. 
in those days. And if we're doing our own Bible story, what's a question that we could ask? What days? Again, come on, people. I have a microphone. You don't. You have to speak up. In what days? And Matthew's not led to point out in what days this actually happened. He just says in those days. If we were just to have the Gospel of Matthew, then what we would do is we would go back to what happened before this event and what Matthew is referring to. Well, I will tell you. He's referring to in his own gospel in the days to which Jesus Christ grew up in Nazareth and would be called a Nazarene as to fulfill the prophets. But, thanks be to God, we have other gospel sources. We have Matthew, we have... Good, now you're doing a little louder, I like it. So go with me to the gospel of Luke, and Ethan, I apologize because that's going to totally change what you're doing back there. Gospel of Luke, keep Matthew, your finger or something there to mark Matthew, because we're going to go back and, and read that. But in Luke chapter 3, Luke gives us a little more precise timing of what Matthew's gospel says in those days. So in Luke chapter 3, the word of the Lord says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So now go back to Matthew chapter 3, right? This, this is the fun part we're going to have as we go through the series. Matthew says, in, no day, in those days, but I get to use Luke's, and Luke gives me a more precise timing and description of what those days are. Luke's description of in those days means this is a very dark and critical time for the Jewish people. They are under the Roman rule and, and pagan nation is over them. They're running the place. Along with that, Luke tells us how many high priests were there. May I remember from Luke? Keep going down. Two. All right, there were two high priests. And here's the problem. When Luke points out there are two high priests, he's letting us know that even the Jewish religious society has been corrupted. According to Jewish tradition and law, only one high priest was to be in place. Luke gives us the two names of those high priests, which actually play a role later on in the gospel with Jesus and eventually the, the, the crucifixion. Their names are Caiaphas and Annas. Now, Caiaphas was the father-in-law of Annas, and Annas was technically the high priest of in those days of Matthew. But neither of them wanted to give up their role, so they kept swip, swap, switch, switching back and forth. That's what I'm trying to say. They kept going back and forth about who's going to be the high priest, which isn't how God meant for the priesthood to be set up. They were unwilling to let go of their power, much like we saw with Herod in the Gospel of Matthew, unwilling to give his power to this newly born king of the Jews. And so Luke is pointing out, these are dark days. In those days, they were dark. In those days, it was a critical time for the Jewish people. In those days, things were corrupted. Luke also points out about John, who's going to be our main feature here this morning, had a father, and his father's name was Zacharias. Does anybody remember from about 12 weeks ago what Zacharias' job was? He was a priest. He was from the tribe of Levi and his priests. It was when he was doing his priestly duties to which he received the message that he would have a son who would prepare the way for the Messiah. He was also married to Elizabeth, who was Mary's relative, possibly a cousin, 
who is also from the tribe of Levi. So they were from a priestly family. And so John is from this priestly family. So in those days, as God is setting all the stage for his son to come and to redeem his people, this is what Matthew captures in those three little words. In those days. Now the reason Matthew doesn't elaborate like Luke does is because of the audience to which each is writing to. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. They would have understood in those days. They would have remembered when John the Baptist was preaching. They would have understood all the things that were going on. Luke is writing to a primarily Gentile audience. And so he's elaborating a little bit more so they can understand the time. In those days, when we use Luke, it's about 29 A.D. All right, now that we started with the first three words, let's read on. So, Ethan, can you go back to Matthew chapter 3? In those days... Insert Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of, of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire." So not only does Luke tell us what these days were and that these were dark and critical days, and we can find out who John was by using Luke to understand his background, we can understand that John being in the wilderness should seem odd, but a lot of us are so familiar with this story that it doesn't. We're so familiar with John preparing the way in the wilderness, his name being John the Baptist. What kind of Baptist was he? Southern, American, Judeo. He was Judeo-Baptist. That. Baptist simply implies that he was immersing people in the Jordan River. That's what Baptist means when it says John the Baptist. But he is not where we would expect him to be found. He is from the priestly family. We would expect him to be somewhere at a temple, somewhere at a synagogue, doing priestly duties. But where do we find John in the passage? He's in the wilderness. The word wilderness there means a desolate area. Sometimes it's read as desert. It really implies an inhabited area which would be hard to live in. And so John is in the wilderness and he's crying out this message, preaching a message to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The word preaching there in verse 1 of Matthew means to make known in and with authority. John is in the wilderness crying out for people to come to this place of repentance. When we look at all three synoptic Gospels, they all quote from the same passage of Scripture found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. All three Gospels quote that verbatim. But then we go to the Gospel of Luke, and in Luke chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Luke adds to the prophecy. He says, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Again, Luke most likely adds this. It's from Isaiah. It's from the same chapter, from the same context. Because his original audience would not have been as familiar with the passage as Matthew and Mark's original audience. So he adds to give them some significance on what it's going to look like when this Messiah shows up to which John is preparing the way. But all the Gospels use this passage to say there needs to be a preparation. That word prepare there in verse 3 means to make something ready and then continue to keep it ready. It's taken from the Roman world. What would happen is a ruler would come from Rome or be associated with Rome in some way. He would send a messenger before him. That messenger would go into all the cities to which the ruler would pass by, and he would announce, this individual is coming, this governor is coming, Caesar is coming. All the people would then begin to prepare and make ready, kind of like when we have guests coming over to our house. We begin to prepare. We, we maybe clean up or we shove things in closets or under beds, right? That's what it was. We were preparing for this incredible visit. And as the messenger would go through all the towns and all the cities, the next thing that would happen would be a road construction crew from Rome. And they would come and they would check all the roads, make sure there's not any bumps, make sure there's not any holes, make sure there's not any debris, make sure that the road is smooth so that when this authoritative figure comes into the area, everything will go wonderfully for them. This is what John says when he says prepare. He is preparing the way for this authoritative figure who we know to be Jesus Christ to come. Except John is not saying that we need to prepare physical roads. Instead he's saying you need to prepare your spiritual heart for the coming of the eternal king. You need to make everything ready so it will be as smooth as possible when he invades your life. Luke, adding the addition prophecy from Isaiah, is simply telling us what to expect when this king arrives, who is Jesus. Those who are low, which Luke, the prophecy speaks of valleys, are going to be lifted up. Those who are on mountains or high, which speaks of the proudly, are going to be brought low. Those who are rough are going to be made level. Those who are crooked are going to be straightened. Ultimately, what the prophecy is speaking of, what John is pointing to, and all the Gospels point to, is when people meet Jesus, things are going to have to change. They're not going to stay the way they are. And the reason is because all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's from Luke chapter 3, verse 6. The original context of the prophecy Isaiah was given to the Jewish people as they were in exile in Babylon. It would have been a message delivered to them from the prophet of comfort and hope that God was still moving, God was still working, and God was going to bring them back to His presence. But in order for that to happen, this message is a message of repentance. There's going to have to be a change of mind. There's going to have to be a change of action. There may have to be a change of location. But ultimately, change must occur. That is what it means to repent. When we repent, we're changing our mind, our attitude, our action about a certain thing. And the prophecy of Isaiah speaks of a message of repentance. And the people need to repent because as Matthew points out in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
The kingdom of heaven in other passages of Scripture are sometimes referred to as the kingdom of God. What it means is that God's power and His revelation is about ready to invade mankind. So when we pray for God, your kingdom to come, we are praying, God, let your power invade my life. Let your authority be over my life. This invasion was going to be evident through Jesus Christ. John says to prepare for the invasion... The individual must prepare their heart. So the first lesson we learn from John is we have a role to play. Knowing individually and preparing our heart for God's kingdom and His authority to be over our life. But we also have a role to play for other people to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah in their own. John's role was to prepare the people for Jesus' first coming. Jesus was already here, right? He's about 30 years of age about this time. But he's yet to come out on the scene in his ministry. We as God's people in 2020, despite everything that's going on, despite all the uncertainty, we have a role to play in to prepare people for Jesus' second and final coming. We have to prepare them that he is going to return. To do this, we have to preach the message and present the gospel, which calls all people to repent. Without repentance, there is no conviction of sin. Without a conviction of sin, one cannot understand the reason or the need for salvation. And how John lived out his role also teaches us how we should live out our role, which is the second lesson we learn from this passage. To live out our role, we have to live out God's Word. Whose plan was it for John to preach in the wilderness? God's. All right, see, these are easy Sunday school answers, people. God's, Jesus, Bible. Okay, it wasn't the Bible, but it was God's, right? We can say it was Jesus too because they're the same. This wasn't John's plan, right? Whose message was John to deliver? God. It wasn't John's message. Whose idea was it for John to cry out in the wilderness? God's. John didn't come up with this plan. If John would have stuck to probably his plan and his family's plan for him, he would have been serving as a priest. But he had this calling, this commissioning to be somewhere else. And how did John get to where he was to do what he did and to say what he said? God. John was simply living out God's spoken word over him in the wilderness. His message wasn't one he made up. His calling wasn't one that he gave himself. Even his wardrobe wasn't one that he put on himself. You know, a lot of time as people we seem to question, and people who are seeking God question, what does God want from me? You ever had that question? God, what do you want from me? It's right here. God wants us to live out His Word. To live it out. Allow God's Word to guide us where we need to be. Allow us to teach us how we handle our resources and our possession. Allow it to show us how to act and talk around people, allow it to reveal us how to treat people, to reveal what type of person that we should be in this life and what type of people we should maybe avoid in this life. Allow God's Word to give us the wisdom and how we should vote here in a couple months. God's Word leads us to that thing. Allow God's Word to reveal how we should have a work ethic and what we should do with our free time. The Bible reveals God's Word is meant to teach, reproof, correct, and train us for righteousness so we may be complete, 
That means perfect, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17. John, in our passage, did what he did because God's word guided him to do it. That's it. And yet John the Baptist was one that Jesus said that there's been no man born of a woman greater than he. But what was he doing? He was just allowing God's word to be his fuel and his source to know where he should be and what he should do and what he should say and how even he should look. All three synoptic gospels point out John's message. It's Matthew and Mark which point out John's attire. Verse 4 in Matthew. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. What do you think? Why do you think Matthew and Mark felt we needed to know what John was wearing? Let's just start there. Camel's hair and a leather belt. Not really a fashion statement, right? Okay, it is very simple. It's, it's known to be scratchy. You think anybody else in Scripture may have dressed that way? It wasn't Jesus and one God, so you can't answer that one now. Elijah. There's a passage in the Old Testament which specifically speaks of how Elijah dressed in camel's clothing, camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist. Who was Elijah? I I think I said prophet. I heard somewhere over here. He was a prophet. What did a prophet do? Prophesied. Yeah, yeah, they prophesied. They're basically the microphone of God. God would speak to the prophet. The prophet would speak to the people. A lot of times it was a time of repentance, a change of course of action, sometimes a warning of coming judgment. Elijah was thought to be one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah coming back. Not that Elijah, like, you know, resurrected or, um, what's the other word? reincarnated, very good, but that he was the image of Elijah in this day. And so John was wearing this wardrobe, guess what, because God guided him to wear this wardrobe because John was to play the role of a, what was Elijah? Prophet. And this is significant for us because in this time right now, we read this and we see John's wardrobe, which Mark and Matthew are both pointing out to because then their audience would have been familiar with Elijah's wardrobe. That's why Luke doesn't point it out. And so they would have known that they're pointing John to be a prophet. And at this point in time in history, it had been over 400 years since a prophet had emerged on the scene. 400 years since God had spoken through an individual to his people. This was significant. John was taking on the role to which God had commissioned him to take. God led him to do this. What about the locusts and wild honey? Locust was the only bug that was deemed cleaned in the Old Testament. Honey, in this particular region where John was, and even though it says wilderness, he was somewhere in the Jordan Valley, somewhere it was desolate, somewhere it was out of the way. Honey was available to be had. Now we know John came from a priestly family. If we are familiar with the Old Testament, then we should know that God told his people that you are to take care of the priests. 
You're to give an offering. They'll go to the priest and provide for their means because their job is to be the priesthood of the people. And so they're not to have another job. They don't even have land. They have a couple cities. And so the priesthood in, in this day where John was, was very well taken care of. In the Jewish society, they were considered the upper class of the Jewish society. And yet we find John, who had this role he could have stepped into, but we find him in the wilderness, leaving a very simple life, stepping away from everything the world had to offer. He allowed God's word to guide him, and he allowed God's hand to provide for him. This is what John is doing as he's out here calling out. And another lesson we learn simply from this is John was fulfilling his role and allowing and living out God's word is when John did what God told him to do and allowed God to guide him where he's supposed to be. The amazing thing we learned the lesson is God does the work. Where was John again? Wilderness. Y'all are gonna start praying for more people to show up, so I don't keep asking y'all questions and expect response, right? Where was John again? It was a desolate area, hard to get to. You have to keep in mind, the only roads that were in this time period are roads that went to significant cities, places where governors and rulers would travel most frequently. So to get to desolate, uninhabited areas, you had to hike it. You had to find a dirt path. You had to find a gravel road. You had to find a dirt road, and you just had to walk. And this would not have been an easy place to get to. John has forgotten the first rule of realty, which is what? But God doesn't play by those rules, does he? God plays by kingdom rules. See, John isn't out here to build a megachurch. He's not out here to have a massive following. Those scriptures seem to imply that people were drawn to him because this is the beautiful thing about being in God's work. It's when we're faithful to God's word, when we're playing out the role that God has commissioned us and told us to play, is that God starts drawing people to himself. We simply are faithful. God is invitational. We do what God has led us to do through his word, and then we allow God to do the great mighty thing of bringing people to himself. That's the beauty of church, is that we simply remain faithful to his word. We preach it. We live it out the best way possible, and we'll see God blessing that by bringing people to himself. God will fill the halls. God will fill the ministries. God will do the work. We simply remain faithful to what he's doing. All three synoptic gospels emphasize that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to see John. God was drawing people just as God draws people to himself. And there are several types of people. If you want to read in Luke, we're going to spend a lot more time in Luke next week to which God drew. He drew people who were searching and people who accepted what they saw. He drew people who were just curious about what was taking place out there in the wilderness. And he even drew people who were opposed to what he was doing. We see this in Matthew. As Matthew points out in verse 7 that there's two groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, also came out to see the baptism. These two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, these were the religious elite amongst the Jewish people. The word Pharisees means separated. And this group felt that they were the separated ones by God. It was their duty to not only study the law, but then interpret the law for the people, to put it in practical application so the people of God could know how they were to live out the law. 
This resulted in the Pharisees having a thing called the oral law, which you'll encounter in Scripture Jesus will refer to as man-made traditions. They felt that they were spiritually elite. They felt that they were above everyone else because that's what their name implied. God had separated them for this incredible task. Then you have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were derived from a high priestly party. They denounced the Pharisees' oral law, but they also did not believe in resurrection, angels, or demons, which Paul uses in the book of Acts to his own advantage. The Sadducees, though, tended to align themselves more with the Romans' political prestige than with the Pharisees. Both groups had their own agenda, and Matthew in his gospel always seems to pair these two groups together because both groups saw John and Jesus as a threat to their way of life. If John would have stayed in the priesthood, he most likely would have been aligned with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were in charge of temple worship. And that is what Zechariah did. But we find John out here in the wilderness calling out these two groups to the religious people who John's audience on this day would have looked at these two individuals like, wow, can you believe they're here? But John calls them out because these two people to which the people of God, the Jewish people to look to, the one to, to help them understand what God required of them. And then another group, the strategies to lead them into the presence of God, were not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so John looks at them, and look at verse 7, he says, Coming to his bed, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Right? Simmer down, John. <laughs> These are the religious people in the society. These are the traveling evangelists, the TV evangelists in our day. These are the, the mainstream preachers in our day. I'm not saying all those people are corrupt, but there are many who are on that, that platform who are. And they show up on John's, in John's audience, the banks of the Jordan River. And John doesn't say, it is so good to see you here today missed you you brood of vipers he's taken from the old testament when he says that he's calling them children of satan <laughs> how'd you like that to walk into a church and that's what the preacher says to you you spawn of satan you <laughs> but see john's not saying this without context john coming from a priestly family would have known of the corruption within the priesthood. He would have known what these two groups were supposed to be doing and knew they weren't doing it. So he's not name-calling them for nothing. He's calling their attention, and then he further goes with a rhetorical question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He didn't expect them to answer it, like I've asked you some questions they expecting an answer. He's drawing the audience and these two groups of people to understand the severity of the situation. John is saying, I didn't invite you. And I know you're not listening to God, so he didn't send you. And I doubt anyone here on, this, on the banks of the Jordan River told you to come. So why are you here? Verse 8. This is where John is driving home. Bear fruit and keeping with repentance. 
John preached a message of repentance. His baptism was for repentance. People were coming out in verse 6 confessing their sins, meaning they were repenting. And so John lays the same message before these religious elite. If you want to get right with God, repent. Because this status you have, this thing that you think you are, has only been unfruitful and only been taking the people of God further away from Him. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, with a changing of your action, a changing of your attitude. And just in case they want to begin a debate, John brings up their heritage, verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Because it's a rhetorical question, and then he calls them out and bearing fruit good with repentance, he knows their objection is going to be this. But John, we're descendants of Abraham. We're, we're of the priestly tribe. We've been set aside by God. We are children of the covenant. And John tells them, do not think for a second your heritage or being born into the right family is going to lead to your salvation. It is only found in the one who's coming after me. Stop thinking so highly of yourself. You need to repent just as much. And to drive home his point, John brings out these three images of stones, an image of an axe, and a fire. He says, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. To understand what John is saying, where is John preaching and baptizing again? Jordan River, right? Jordan River. I think that's what everybody said. Anybody else know what happened at the Jordan River in the Old Testament? I saw Larry do this. I don't think he wanted a hug. That's like not protocol right now. But Joshua chapter 3 and 4. So Moses commissioned by God to bring Egypt out of, or bring Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. They wandered around for 40 years because they were unwilling to do what God wanted them to do and for God to guide them. Joshua is commissioned as the second leader. He takes over Moses' position. Remember, we went through Joshua for like a year and a half, people. Come on. So in chapter 3 and 4, the Israelites, with Joshua as the leader, are getting ready to cross into the Promised Land. And what river do you think they have to cross? The Jordan River. And as they cross the Jordan River, a miraculous thing happened. The water parts. It stops up at the way. They walk across on dry ground. Remember to what happened at the Red Sea 40 years ago. Hey, Mom and Dad talked about something like this, right? And as they're going across the river, God tells Joshua to grab one person from every tribe of Israel. How many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. Very good. To grab one person from every tribe to grab a stone in the river and to bring it to the other side and to set it up as a memorial. And so when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Israel will be able to tell how God delivered them, how God protected them, how God provided for them. Guess what? God did all of this and simply allowed us to be a part of it. And so John, on the banks of the Jordan River, says God can raise up from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. From these stones of memorial, 
to remember what God had done in delivering us, what God had done in protecting us, what God had done in providing for us, what God had done in bringing us to this promised land to which John is currently standing at right now. He's reminding them, it's not what you think you can do, Pharisees, or what you can do, Sadducees. It's all about what God is already doing and has simply invited us to be a part of it because of Jesus. It's not about us. John's going to emphasize that in verse 11 in a second. He says, an axe is laid to the root of the tree. Image of axe in Scripture is always a symbol of destruction, but notice where this axe is. When I... I don't cut down trees very often, trust me. I've only swung an axe a couple times. But the image of an axe is typically you're hitting a tree somewhere on the trunk, right? Where's this axe hitting? The root. John's saying this axe, this symbol of destruction, is going to come and he's going to uproot everything that you know. He's going to take out all the nutrients, everything that you've been relying upon, which for the Pharisees and Sadducees, was that it was them who offered the way to God. It was them who understood the Word of God. It was them who interpreted the Word of God. It was the law to which we lived. It was the worship sacrifices to which we give. John is saying when Jesus comes, He's going to uproot all that because He's going to fulfill the law and He's going to be the full atoning sacrifice. Your way of life, Pharisees and Sadducees, is about to be completely uprooted through Jesus Christ. And then he talks about fire. Fire is always associated, or the most common image, with eternal punishment. John's testimony message of repentance, saying that repentance leads to genuine faith, which leads to fruit, and is the revelation of our salvation to the world that Christ has in fact come in our life. Because He comes reminds us what God has done, not what we think we can do. And He uproots every system that we have to make our way to God, so we have to completely rely upon Him, so we're ready for when the eternal punishment comes. The lesson we learn is when we speak God's Word, when we live God's Word, we must be bold for the truth. There's a boldness in John here. This boldness is going to get his head cut off eventually. We'll get to that. Sorry, I just ruined spoiler, right? Why do we need to be bold for the truth? See, you can fill in the mic. Jesus said, and the truth will set you free. It's not politics. It's not laws. It's not sanctions not phases. Isn't that a new word we have in our vocabulary for 2020? What phase are we on? I don't know. It's the truth. Only the truth which is found in Scripture will set this world free. It's not even a mask. And I apologize, I have not been leading well by not wearing my mask. I've got one. My mama made it. Cute, isn't it? But these won't even set us free. Only the truth. And so we have to be bold because we know this. We know that if people do not have Jesus, they're going to hell. They're going to experience this fire to which John is speaking of. We know when it comes to eternity, there are only two places. There's heaven and hell. And there are only two types of people. Those who go to heaven and those who go to hell. Jesus referred to as wicked and righteous. 
And the only way to get from wicked to righteous is that they have to be able to know the truth. And the only way they can know the truth, Paul writes, is that we have to preach the truth. We have to present the truth. We have to share the gospel. But then John drives it home, not only to be bold, but in verse 11 and 12, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with the unquenchable fire. Not only do we have to have boldness, but a lesson we learn, we also have, a, have to have a humbleness of the messenger. John understood this. His platform, his message, his sermon, his preaching was not about him. And he would not let anyone who came into his audience to think he was something great. He said, if you think I'm great, <laughs> just wait for what's coming. It's going to blow your socks off. Sandals, I guess, right? It's going to amaze you. He says in verse 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. What John is saying is, I'm not even worthy, even though I've got all these people coming to see me, all these people coming to hear this message of repentance and, and to go into a baptism. He's saying, I am not worthy to be the lowliest of servants to the one who's coming. The dirtiest guy in the building, I'm not worthy to be him compared to this one that's coming. John wasn't preaching for mega churches or large audiences. He was preaching to prepare for the Messiah, and to do that, he knew it wasn't about him. It wasn't about his success. It wasn't about his longevity. It wasn't about his worldly fame or riches. It was about preaching Jesus because he was completely reliant upon Jesus, just like we all are. He says he will baptize the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit and fire. Water and fire are symbols of judgment. And John drives this home in verse 12, the threshing floor to which John speaks of. That would have been a very familiar thing for the Jewish people. They would have known that job where the wheat was brought in and it was threshed with a winnowing fork. Typically what happened in this day is when you thresh the wheat, the chaff would simply fall off and eventually the wind would blow away. But John says, judgment is coming. The chaff is representative of wicked, ungodliness, unholiness. And John says it's not going to simply blow away somewhere else to be forgotten about. It's not going to be swept under a rug. But everything that is not fruitful, everything that is not holy, is going to be consumed with fire until it is no more. The final lesson we learn from John is that we must live with eternity in mind. This is what John is doing. Even before Jesus even steps on the scene, he's preparing people not only for Jesus' arrival, but the ultimate outcome of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is going to separate completely the wheat from the chaff. And the wheat will be the fruitful, the useful. Those will be welcomed into heaven. The chaff will be consumed in an unquenchable fire, which is referred to as hell in Scripture. This is why we have to present the gospel. This is what we're really up against. It's not a pandemic. It's not who's going to win the president election. It's not, is there going to be another stimulus package? We're up against, there are people in our life who don't know Jesus, and they're heading to an unquenchable fire. So we want to preach boldly and humbly at the same time. 
Because that's the role God has called us to, to be his ambassadors for his kingdom. But you may be here this morning, and one thing you need to know is that there are two places, heaven and hell, that's it. There's no purgatory. There's no, like, in-between hoping people pray for you to get out of one or pay enough to free you. It's not scripture. It's heaven or hell. That's it. And the Bible says if you don't have Jesus Christ, you're heading to hell. But the gospel is that God knows we can't fix our sin problem. We can't live out His holy standards. So Jesus Christ did that for us, dying on the cross and rising and we can be forgiven. And the Bible says if I admit to God, you don't have to admit to me, you admit to God that I'm a sinner, but I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again that I might be forgiven and given the promise of eternal salvation in heaven, then I just confess that with my mouth. Jesus is Lord. He is my Savior. You're here this morning, and maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. And maybe you're here this morning, and you realize that God wants to use me. And He empowers me by His Spirit and gives me the book to do what He wants me to do right here. So I need to be about what God wants to do. Maybe you need to come and kneel before the Father because you haven't been doing that, or just kneel before the Father to let you see where He's leading you to do that. We're going to come to time of invitation. I'm going to ask Brother Nick come on up and lead us. And then pray over you. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you give us boldness. Lord, I thank you and I think of our brothers in the book of Acts who were persecuted for preaching your word. And when they were released from prison, they gathered and they prayed for more boldness. Father, forgive me and forgive us if we have not been bold for your truth the truth which sets people free. If we have just sat on the sidelines as others have protested and rioted and destroyed things because of their views, and Lord, we have not preached the message of your gospel, a message of hope and love and peace and a future inheritance in heaven. Lord, let us be faithful to the roles you've called us to, to the people you've placed in our life that we may preach in boldness and humility and point everyone to you as John did. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. Be with our brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't here for whatever reason they aren't here. Lord, that you would just draw us and continue to draw us back to your presence. And praise on the name of Jesus. Amen.